Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive in scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 411 is recorded live July 4th, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where the roads are crying. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I know you can hear me a lot better when I turn the mic back. But uh, I'm enjoying the hot weather, uh, a lot of blue skies, with the occasional clouds and a little bit of rain. But the last couple of days have been rather warm. High 80s? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, t- today I saw 87. Uh, both my kids were in a, the 4th of July parade, so uh, well, I was uh, had the truck out there in that. And uh, my my comment of that the roads were crying was they must have oversealed this road. And I, I haven't seen this happen before, but uh, obviously it must happen. But when you drive real slow and you have the windows down, you could smell the tar. And it looked like two gummy strips going down the parade route uh, just from that overseal uh, seeping up. So kind of like a hardened tar pit. But we're not complaining. I, After so much cold we have all winter, it's nice to have a little bit of warm weather. I'm all for it. I know it's really warmed up Pawpaw Lake and a lot of the inland lakes, especially in the shallows. You don't need a wetsuit if you really want to get wet. Yeah, this is this is the best time of the year to be getting in there. Other than the visibility might be a little bit down, but if you're one of those people who doesn't like the cold water, well, it, it's going away. It's getting oh, to be yeah. a lot warmer in the shallows, especially. Yeah. And what we didn't comment on is it's the Fourth of July, which in the United States is Independence Day, so it is a day off from work. Which I guess it's a day off from. Most places official work. I was certainly doing a lot of work today. Yeah, Myers is open. They're always open. Gas stations, kind of place. Yep. Yep. And this is the the day where we celebrate blowing your hands off. Only if you're stupid. There's no reason to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We only have one of the, the diehards are in this week. Uh, must be people didn't think we were going to be recording, which I didn't. On, honestly, I didn't know. I, I was hoping we could, but it's the holidays, so leave things a little bit up in the air. The first epi- the first episode, first article is a very sad incident. Search for shipwreck leads to the death of two scuba divers, and I covered this because it's right in our own backyard. It happened on July first. Uh, learning about a husband and wife team, uh, both fifty three, who died on. Friday, June 28th, while scuba diving in Lake Michigan, the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office said Susan Wynn died upon returning to shore, and uh, James Wynn's body was uh, recovered uh, Monday evening. Uh, a fellow diver said the couple was incredibly experienced in the water. They had gone out 
on dives in Lake Michigan all around the world. That's why news of deaths was especially shocking. James and Susan Wynn were looking for shipwrecks at the bottom of the lake on Friday afternoon when something went horribly wrong. Left on their boat uh, from Jerry's Geyer's dock off South Water Street. While Geyer was not their captain, he briefly talked to the winds of their excursion. As they unload in the morning with their gear and their expectations, it was a calm day. Forty years ago, Geyer had experienced diver himself, first discovered the ship called the, Do- the Dotty that the winds were exploring. He said it is 300 feet below the surface. It is a dive that requires extensive tra- training and thousands of dollars of specialized equipment. Uh, the winds, yeah, here, let me try mute. I don't know if people heard that. Uh, the winds YouTube video showed that they were well prepared for the challenge at around 1 p.m. on Friday. The Coast Guard said Susan Wynn was found unresponsive after coming to the surface rapidly, which can lead to decompression sickness, also known as the bends. While her cause of death is unknown, the condition can be fatal. Crew spent more than 20 hours searching nearly 240 square miles using both boats and cal- helicopters trying to locate James Wynn. It's pretty rare to have a dual accident. Usually it's a sole diver where we dive in pairs or in large groups. We have two people not make it back to surface. I've never heard of, Geyer said. It's a very sad story, a very sad incident. It can happen at any point. And then, Mac, you had another article where they talked a little bit more about it, didn't they? Well, yeah, that was the one where they said they recovered uh, the gentleman, but they didn't have a lot of details. Uh, and they didn't really indicate whether or not they found them back on the wreck or somewhere else. They said they searched 240 square miles, uh, but mm-hmm. that doesn't indicate he was on the wreck. No. Well, and then also, if he was weighted down and maybe neutrally buoyant at the time, it could take a little bit for the conditions to change. You know, he he could have, you know, gotten to the bottom and then uh, took some sort of current to knock him to the point where his buoyancy would then bring him back to the surface. Yeah, but 300 feet, you could be anywhere. I mean, you know how hard it is to find a boat at that depth, much less a person. Unless visibility is extremely clear, you can be 10, 20 feet off and not find something. Absolutely. So that's sad. Uh, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to their families. That's a tragedy, and it's uh, you know something you don't like to see. What the heck is planned now? All these spammy websites. It's like a grumpy old man all of a sudden. You know, we did cover the Dottie long time, well, a couple of years ago. Oh, as far as a wreck? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a large, it was the largest wooden sailing ship on Lake Michigan with a length of over 300 feet of itself. Yeah. Wisconsin's got a lot of those uh, technical diving wrecks that people like to go on. Well, uh, that was in 2010 when they first dove it. Uh, Brandon Ballard and Charter Captain Jatika, uh, Kevin's dove with her. I can't pronounce mm-hmm. her last name. Uh, yeah, we, 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 I've, I've met her, uh, right. Did we have her on the show? We did. We, yeah, I think we've had her on the show too. Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, they've dove that, but 300 feet, she's unright or she's sank on the bottom, upright, intact. Remains of the corn cargo is still present in the hole. Yeah. But that is yeah, definitely that's the one where a, I think there was, there's technical, technical diving, right? Yeah. 
big time. As a side mm-hmm. note, you were breaking up every now and then for some reason. You're in the middle of a sentence and it got to garbled and then you're back. Uh, how am I sounding now? Right now you're sounding good. Okay. <laughs> well, hopefully I don't have too much to edit later on. Next story we have is a plane makes an emergency landing in Dallas when scuba diver suffers decompression sickness. Plane made an emergency landing in Dallas when the scuba diver returning from Denver to Denver from his honeymoon in Cancun suffered decompression sickness during the flight. Malik Altuls and his wife, Kendra Allerby, were on their way home last week when Altuls started feeling sick. We were only about 20 minutes in the flight when my hands started tingling. I felt nauseous, dizzy, and had trouble breathing. I told the flight attendant I need oxygen right away. I think I have decompression sickness. The newlyweds went on three dives from 15 feet to 30 feet below the surface, about 20 minutes in the flight. Altuz, realizing what was happening, decompression sickness is caused by high levels of nitrogen entering the tissue. Nitrogen bubbles can block blood vessels, which can be deadly. He'd been working a lot, which made him very dehydrated, said Edward Tomai, DO of Internal Medicine and Physician at the Medical Staff at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital Dallas. It's very important to stay hydrated while drinking water before and after the dive. Uh, The doctor, who also specialized in hyperbaric medicine, says people who do high-intensity workouts before a dive might increase their risk of diving accident or decompression sickness. The illness results from reduction of the ambient pressure surrounding the body when bubbles grow in tissues, causing damage. It also occurs at a 1,000 U.S. scuba divers each year, according to Divers Alert Network, Dan. The deeper you dive, the nitrogen bubbles in your body begin to dissolve into your blood and tissue. If you come right back to surface rapidly or you stay in the water for a long period of time, those bubbles expand and block blood flow. After the plane safely landed in Dallas, uh, he had hyperbaric oxygen therapy at the Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas. Doctors recommended divers to do multiple dives in one day to wait at least 18 hours before flying. Altu said he waited 19 hours, but doctors say decompression sickness can vary for different people. Then uh, we talked a little bit about this before the show, but what I hadn't seen is they talked about uh, dehydration, which certainly can uh, play into it. And, being down in Mexico, if you're not being hydrated, that can complicate things. And then what they didn't mention, and maybe they didn't ask or didn't bring it up, but if you're in Cancun at an all-inclusive on a honeymoon, alcohol, you know, could be a factor, which could contribute to dehydration. I'm just curious about one thing. What's that? They took off from Cancun 20 minutes. Into the flight, he had issues, and they continued all the way to Dallas. Why wouldn't they have turned around and landed? Well, Dallas, uh, from Cancun to Dallas, he made, how many, was it 19 minutes, you said, or 90? No, he said 19 minutes into the flight. Yeah, tw- I'm sorry, 20 minutes to the flight, hands started tingling, felt nauseous, dizzy, trouble breathing. So why didn't they land? Uh, let me see. Let's. We should do. See, can we Google flight time from Dallas to Cancun? Because I, I would imagine if they did, well, did they increase the cabin pressure? Did they go lower? Because 
I'm just curious. Same Dodd. Yeah, it says that's a, that flight is two hours and 40 minutes duration. Kidoki. So you're right. So they weren't, they, they weren't even more close. Yeah. So you accelerated the condition by putting them in a low, you know, pressure type environment, which makes the bubble bigger or whatever, come out of yep. solution. So you just made, <laughs> doesn't seem logical. No, no. Now, uh, I don't know, does here's, Cancun here's, have a hyperbaric chamber? I uh, mean, with as much diving as done there, I would think, think so. so. Yeah, I would so think so. Like, I don't understand why they didn't bring them right back. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at some, and they say uh, flight time on average is two hours and nine minutes, and it might actually even be two hours because, of, you know, what's factored in is, you know, time on the tarmac to get up and, and over. Uh, so, and, and who knows at what point, you know, he started having the symptoms 19 minutes in the flight, but at what point did the pilots know? And then what is the I would I would for? think as soon as he asked for oxygen, the pilots are going to know because you're going to tell somebody, we got a problem in the cabin there, buddy. I could, you really don't want people to die on your freaking airplane. Yeah, that's not, not good PR. <laughs> no. So I'm curious about that. Yeah. And I'm going to go not back like to a cruise the, ship. They don't. True. Uh, yeah. on a cruise ship, you know, they just put you in the cooler and then you can wait yeah. for the next port. Yeah. You're going to go back to the diver on the deep dive, air dive. Um, yeah, we can go ahead and cover that. I don't have, I don't have that one, that one loaded. Oh, sorry uh, about that. That's, I didn't know if no. you skipped it on purpose. Want me to cover it? Well, I was thinking if we, yeah, if you want to cover it. I got it. Yeah, this came out of DiverNet, their second item on the listing. Uh, the title, uh, again, like the first one, Diver Died on Deep Air Dive. And this was an uh, inquest into a scuba diver's death at the National Diving and Activity Center, Gloucestershire. And uh, I looked that up, and it's an inland quarry, quite deep. And it occurred when they called it a very risky 60-meter dive on air and a rapid controlled ascent from 35 meters. Said the, uh, you you, you said that was 60 feet on air? 60 meters. Oh, 60 meters. Okay. 60 meters. She was on air. About 190 190 feet. Right. And then a rapid ascent from 35 meters, which is still feet plus. So the incident occurred at the uh, inland center, at the Tiddenham, and that's a quarry, and that was uh, October 6th of last year. But her and her husband were experienced divers based in Reading and originally from Poland, Poland and uh, arrived with a friend to dive to six feet. Uh, she had not dove that deep, according to the inquest proceedings. Uh, Arthur was a Paddy open water instructor, stated that on their descent, she had signaled that she had had a problem, but then had indicated she wished to continue. He had continued down ahead of her. That was probably the first big mistake. Remember, we talked about the chain of accidents. During the, their ascent, Arthur noticed that his wife was not pulling herself up on the line and found she was struggling, that her mask was filling up with water. At a depth of 35 meters, he decided to risk making a rapid ascent to get her back to the surface but she lost consciousness, consciousness 
and had a cardiac arrest on the way up. Cardiac arrest was a supposed item. At the surface, assistance came very quickly, but it was too late to save his wife. The uh, home office pathologist said that the precise cause of death could not be determined from the postmortem, while not dismissing the possibility of a lung. He suggested it could either have been a heart attack, cerebral gas emblem, embolism, or a combination of the two. Uh, the coroner of the area recorded the verdict of accidental death. And uh, she was using straight air, not any kind of mixed gas uh, like some of the other divers on that excursion. Well, it doesn't sound like she was trained for that depth. No, she was not. And But he was an instructor. Now, was that her husband or just somebody she was diving with? Uh, let me double check. It sounded like her husband. And it says, Arthur and Camelia experienced dive from Poland. So sounded like he was an instructor. Yeah, but she was having, if, it seemed like she was having a lot of problems on the way down. At some point, it seems like you would kind of say, hey, let's just regroup and check. Especially you're going down a line. Or you're not doing yeah, a free. But yeah, but yeah it's, it makes you, it's quizzical of what was the, the issue that she had paused for and then continued. Yeah. And we've always talked about when in doubt, you don't. You go down, you fix yeah. the little troubles. Well, it, no, oh, we'll never yeah, know. It, it, yeah. Yeah, we, we won't. And then here we have, this one's from California, and it's an article that we've, we've covered the contents before, but I just thought it was relevant. It says, Why We Don't Eat California Spiny Lobsters. And the author has always said he found it strange that at lobster festivals in Southern California, which is on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, there were no lobsters from the state at the festivals. They were all being imported from Maine. Uh, and then and then after looking, he found out that almost all the lobsters, 95% of the commercially caught lobsters in California are shipped to China. There's such a high demand for the bugs uh, that the demand has driven up the cost for the spiny lobsters in a relatively short amount of time. In 2009, the California lobster retailed for $10 a pound. In 2015, that price skyrocketed to closer to $30 a pound. Increased demand in China has raised prices in the California spiny lobsters. Americans don't want to pay that much for the delicacy, which comes from its own western coastal waters. Instead, they buy Maine lobsters, which are cheaper. That's how Americans generally make the bulk of their purchases, no matter what it is. We look for bargains. The curious part is understandable that most luxury purchases, which a spiny lobster is, but when it comes to necessities like everyday food, it's a curious trait we have as humans. Cheap does not always mean better. We see that in the rising health issues and then the author goes on and rants on some other things but how often do we see that i mean well i again i see it and it poses one question why do the people in maine not send theirs to china they can make a lot more money and if you're going to ship them to california you keep them on ice and you keep going buddy so it's like that doesn't make any sense I mean, if I can get thirty bucks for something I'm selling to you for ten, I'm sending it to the thirties. Yeah. I may it even may cut my price a, to twenty-five. 
it may be appearance. You know, the spiny lobster and the main lobster do have a slightly different appearance. So maybe it's what they've, they're used to, and it could be the marketing, uh, just how it's been marketed that California spent the time to market it to China. And maybe Maine would do the same thing. Maybe that will happen over time. Uh, you know, they're making it sound like when you purchase the lobster, who was really purchasing it? So if you look at the supply chain, you've got the lobsters in the ocean. You have the commercial fishermen bring it up. There's now some sort of middleman processor, I'm, I'm imagining in most cases, who is taking those lobsters. And then you have to sell those to some, you know, to food service places. So is it the people, you know, not want desiring local lobster and willing to pay $30 or is it the restaurants who don't want to have the liability for the, you know, do you want to have a $30 lobster sitting there that you might not sell and it dies and you have to pitch it? Or do you want a $10 lobster? I don't know if it's necessarily uh, the citizens of California saying, I don't want to pay for our own locally grown lobsters. It's just that when they're talking, when they're ordering lobster at a restaurant, are they really being specific about what they're asking for? Uh, you know, Cause if it's $30 a pound, is the rest the restaurants has to make something so maybe it's forty forty five dollars, but at ten dollars a pound they can mark that up to nineteen dollars a pound, make a hundred percent profit on it. So I I think there's a little bit more there than just the uh, uh, people not wanting to pay for quality is 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 how this author tried to pitch it. Yeah, I think it's interesting though the articles in this said. Uh... But ultimately, most of our best quality seafood is exported abroad. One-third of seafood American catch gets sold to foreign countries. Yep. I looked at some of the uh, comments. It said, in Santa Barbara, during lobster season, October through March, local spiny lobsters are available right off the boat. Fishermen at the Saturday fish and seafood market in the harbor. Also get your own dive trips with Truth Aquatics and their liveaboard to the Channel Islands and get your own. That'd be a nice liveaboard. I would love to do a liveaboard. That's another one. I'll put that on my dive list. A liveaboard where you go to get the lobsters and I imagine they cook them right there in the boat <clears> for you. Well, the person who wrote this, they're saying, uh, for the writer, her trip, her trip out on the waters off the Channel Islands Proved to be a sensory as well as learning experience. After the dive master and her group spears calico bass, large sheephead, sitting on the deck of the boat at sunset overlooking the water, she and her boatmates eat raw calico and sheephead miso soup. We freshly pop, pops freshly cracked open scallops and uni, I don't know what uni is, into her mouth like candy. It's at this point she recognizes she is eating the bounty of seafood from California in California, that most Californians rarely get the chance to eat. That sounds like a hell of a good trip there. It does. Yeah. Boatmates eat raw. I guess raw fish is fine. I I would just want somebody to... Yeah, sushi, yeah. just, Just don't poison me, please. Yeah, they were talking about the owner of the Catalina Offshore Products 
one of the largest seafood and export companies in California, said the problem is that as much as people talk about buying local, they actually buy based on the price, no matter where it comes from. And I think that's not just food they're talking about. Yeah, I I think in general. Uh, well, but the thing is, do you get to make the decision? Like right now, you know, we've just left strawberry season. We're in cherry season in Michigan. And when you go to Martin's or Meyer and you buy, you know, a nice clear plastic port of cherries or strawberries, it's California or Mexico. You, you can't get Michigan strawberries in the grocery store. But you can go and get the mom and pop down there on the on side of the road, get good stuff. Oh, yeah. And the price won't be as cheap as a grocery store because the grocery store, even the stuff coming from Ch- uh, California or Mexico, isn't that cheap. It's a loss leader. Well, I know that Rogers and Martin does not have cherries yet. They're still on the yeah. grapes. Yeah. They, uh, and, of course, strawberries, blueberries. Yeah, because I just had some strawberries this week, and I looked at them, and I'm like, come on, these aren't Michigan. No, they're Mexican. Now the problem is that, yeah, that, is that the Michigan strawberries are pretty much off. They they, you only got a good three or four weeks because we're not growing them in greenhouses, and they don't, they, they don't have as long of a season. I don't know how they do it down there, if it's part of the irrigation and the season, well, the but salmon. it seems like they got strawberries coming constantly. Yeah, well, like the salmon I'm going to buy again tomorrow is from Ecuador. And I, I really don't know how you farm salmon, but these are farm-grown. But you look at the price of that salmon, you look at the price of some of the others, depending on where it's at, and it's like, how can they make it cheaper? And the quality's got to be just as well, just as good. Yeah. Well, you know, to go back to lobster, you know, my mom's family, my mom and her family are from Maine. And every time we go and visit, we'd have lobster. Because I'm a, a price-conscious, responsible person, I haven't had lobster, you know, at least the tail or the full lobster in, well, probably 19 years. It's not because I don't love it. It's just that that doesn't fit into my budget. I, I don't, with everything I want to spend my money on, it's not that I, I'm being cheap. I mean, Maine lobster or California lobster, or any lobster for that matter. It's just that in my budget. You, know, you can you can have a nice steak for less. I'd probably splurge on that more than before I would do a lobster. So I have, I, catch... I like crab before I do lobster. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, crab's good. Oh yeah, makes me think of the Bering Straits and yeah, watching those guys out there, the Ophelio crabs and the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to have some of that. Kopi. Yeah, that's all good stuff. You know, some someday. <laughs> When my kids get out of college, maybe I'll then you can I'll afford you can afford to have something other than cream of wheat and grits yeah. or something. Well, I do uh, you know protein shakes for breakfast. Uh, I have a can of soup for lunch, and then uh, usually some chicken or something for dinner. I mean, it's a pretty you can get monotonous, but that's just kind of what the budget does. But nobody needs to cry for me. We're doing okay. And then this one's in Holland. I, did we cover this last week? I know I had it in the list, but I think we may have jumped over it. But the uh, Sandy Channel State Recreation Area 
is is working on a project that includes scuba diving. Oh, this wait, this is the wrong one. Darn it! This is a different one. This one, this one's in, in Nebraska. South Carolina, or, Nebraska. It's in Nebraska. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I, I saw this one. I thought it was the uh, Highland. We'll cover this one. Um, the, uh, the, the guide to good, uh, the store, uh, let me go and let's find something. Sometimes it's hard to jump into some of these articles and have anything interesting to, to cover. Uh, this area was a borrow pit from the interstate where the interstate was built. And you see those in Michigan a lot. You'll see a lot of water along the roads, uh, p- you know, ponds and little lakes. And that's what it is, is to get soil and dirt and gravel for the interstate. They would just grab it along the roads. You know, why truck it in? Lakes are spread out across the whole area. It's kind of nice when you come up camping here and you see kind of separated from other campers, but to get the privacy, you come here, said uh, Tommy Hicks, the regional park superintendent for Central Region and Nebraska Game and Park. Said a number of years back, they made improvements to the location. There are two new boat ramps. One ramps the main lake north side and one on the south side the north boat ramp has ada sidewalks to it and they also added fishing pier to the two main bodies of water for angler access hicks said vegetation rates have increased with the improvements they've seen more campers more people fishing and then more people using the small lake this peaceful beautiful place where kids just love nature and to be outside and after work and supper we come outside and enjoy time as a family uh, Trying to think where see if we can find out. Uh, most interesting use of Lake I found is scuba diving. Heartland Scuba Center from Kearney gave us some images to share, and some of those you can see in the underwater here. Uh, said it has been dough for years going back to the 70s. <laughs> it looks like an inland lake like that, doesn't it? That photo. Oh, that yeah. Plain fuselage. Yeah, I, I didn't, I wouldn't normally have even covered this, but I, I was thinking that we had the one from Holland. Let me pull that one up yeah they were talking about lots of fish good visibility there's even an airplane out there that if you're qualified i can go show you is what one of the guys was talking uh let's see here it's uh, the clearness of the water is very unique they come from all over the state to train see the seven boats the airplane a big hippo a lot more so it sounds like our quarries around yeah and then I just based in the chat room the article from last week that we didn't get a chance to cover, but scuba diving campground could come to 353 acres of dune near Lake Michigan. Did we cover this? Nope, you missed it last week. Okay. Yeah, scuba diving, kayak rentals, fishing docks, and a modern campground are just some of the features potentially coming to the Ottawa Sands Park. Ottawa County aims to explore these options and more during their master planning session slated to begin this fall, tentative completion date for the plan is 2020. Along the way, officials plan to hold a number of public meetings and input input sessions to gauge resident feedback. The company is seeking $30,000 in federal grants to facilitate the planning process. Ottawa Sands offers prime community place making an economic redevelopment opportunity. Come the new crown jewel of the Ottawa County Park System, also the great enhanced sense of place for the communities on the north side of the Grand River. Ottawa Sands is 353 areas of dunes, water, forest bordering, and the Grand Rapids Channel near Grand Haven, known as the SAG. The center of the property is an 80-acre man-made lake. The park opened last fall with 
scarce amenities apart from a marked hiking trail, potable toilets and signage. Is this where we did the, um, we went and did, tried to do that uh, recovery dive? I'm looking there, and it's like, as soon as I looked at the map, it's like, wait a minute, I think we've been there before. Yeah, I think I think we have. It's not, at the at the time, they, I mean, we were, I, I can't remember That's what five years ago. we were talking about. That's easy, five years yeah. ago. And we may not even been talked on the episode because uh, it was, uh, somebody had lost an item of value. And uh, wanted us to go and dive. In fact, if you look at my Twitter profile, uh, the big image at the top is uh, of a local TV crew taking a photo as we're getting ready because it was uh, you, me, and I think Ken and his wife were yep, there. Yep. And uh, boy, that there were weeds down in the bottom of that lake like you wouldn't believe. It was. Uh, we had a metal detector. We were trying to to locate and that was that was hard but i think this but that was millennium park and uh, it seemed like they would have said millennium park yeah. if it was um lessons learned is always the same <clears throat> x marks the spot and ain't gonna be there nobody remembers where that is i i it would be interesting to do maybe it's a good idea for a video it would be to do a test would be to take somebody who maybe is not a scuba diver, tell them to go out, stop in a place, and drop something in the water, and then give them a pad of paper so they could write down where they were, and then see if somebody could find it. You know, bring somebody in. Based on his direction. Yeah. You know, you, you, you take everybody off the lake. Uh, you bring the divers in, and then you just—they have that person describe it right there. Well, even while it's fresh in their mind, it was right here. And I bet you, it would be tough to find. Yep, that's why when I, I've got a couple of things on my my site, if you lose something either in a boat or on shore, or you're on a dock or a pier, <clears throat> it's it's items that you do. But one of the key items is if you had a handful of pennies, you throw it in mm-hmm. the same splash area. Yeah. If you do that, I can find it with my metal detector. I'm not looking for one object. I got a whole bunch of pennies, and I start finding pennies. I know I'm in the right area. Yeah. Well, this this is kind of a perfect segue into uh, the show that a lot of people love to hate, which is the curse for Civil War gold. This this last episode, and this is a spoiler. So if uh, you if somebody hasn't watched the last episode, which is the one with John Chatterton on it, then you might want to skip ahead a little bit. But you, you know John Chatterton, yeah, yeah. No, him and, yeah, yeah. Well, he he was we've we've interviewed him on the show. Uh, he, they they called him in to help him uh, find and verify something because the conditions are getting bad because it was towards the end of the system season, and so they're out there and they had the. They had GPS numbers. They were right on the numbers. They went down, and it took them 40 minutes to find what supposedly was was right on the numbers. And that, that shows you how, how tough it is to find something in the water. You know, numbers aren't always the numbers. Absolutely. The deeper it is, the less time you have to find. Yep. Depending on the bottom terrain, is it muck, sand? Yeah. Did you have a current? Yeah. A lot of variables. And, and, 
And my thought, if they, if you were, because they were looking for objects that were on the bottom, it would make sense to have like a little buoy or some sort of like marker uh, that you could drop down. Because I know their interpretation of state rules that they're not allowed to touch anything on the bottom. I think it's a little hyper uh, interpretation of the rule just to uh, create suspense. Because if they could immediately disprove stuff, uh, the show would be done. <laughs> so <laughs> you got to create a little suspense. Okay, so that, that's the end of the spoiler. And I didn't really spoil that much. Um, you saw Jim's post today, right? No, I didn't. I, I've not been on Facebook. It was basically, I was looking for bricks and gold paint. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. That back, back, back. Well, there was one. Of, there was one of the bricks because the thing is, the editors are really smart who do this program because all the stuff that they were showing, I was looking at that going, you know, that maybe it doesn't quite look like it. But after they that right before they said it was just gold painted bricks. They showed a brick that was obviously a paver. I don't know if any if you if you've ever installed a modern paver, I meaning one that's you know less than five years old. They have built-in spacers on the side of them, so you don't so you can get the the perfect gap between your paver stones. And last I knew, they didn't put paver gaps in gold bullion bars. <laughs> so, ye of little faith. Yeah, and. And it didn't make any sense to me that a hundred years in the water, that gold is going to be on the top. I mean, we've seen all our experiences that anything that heavy is going to be way below the surface. It's not going to be up on the top where you can see it. I, and, and my, my pet theory back on spoiling is that I think somebody was just messing with them or it was a, a clever plant just to, to create something to find. So, uh, ship sunk off South Carolina by German U-boat in WW2 poses a threat, historians say. So this is history threatening the population. A 75-year-old mystery off the coast of South Carolina took a strange twist Friday when an expedition of maritime archaeologists and historians tried to find an oil tanker sunk by the German U-boat in 1943. The fate of the SS Bloody Marsh is notorious for several reasons, including the fact that U-66 surfaced to view the sinking ship and struck one of the lifeboats, knocking the sailor into the sea before leaving the scene, says marine archaeologist Mike Brennan, who is part of NOAA's backed expedition. Historians have long been puzzled over where it went down, and a fear of environmental time bomb is ticking in the cargo holds. 106,496 barrels of oil, NOAA says. On Friday, an expedition called Window to the Deep 2019 set out to find the ship using high-resolution mapping data, including something the right size sitting 80 miles off South Carolina. However, what they located was not the Bloody Marsh, Noah told official uh, McClatchy. The team did not find a shipwreck, but instead found several rocks outcrops that hosted a variety of sponges, coral fish, and invertebrates. From now, Bloody Marsh will stay lost unless found accidentally, said McClatchy, the website uboat.net suggests it's somewhere off Hilton Head near states Georgia's border. Bloody Marsh will continue to pose a threat because 70 years of 
75 years of corrosion could cause seams to split and release oil cargo at any time, Brennan says. South Carolina popular beaches could feel the impact of the pollution. The wreck has many of the examples of German sea campaign that successfully targeted the merchant shipping vessels resupplying Europe. Uh, and they go on talking about it. But <clears throat> so is this another way of funding? You try and scare everybody to it's going to pollute. So if you don't give me money to. Well, you, you always wonder why, why did they wait so long to go do this? And the environment has always been an issue. By a side note, well, NOAA is, uh, has currently identified 87 wrecks that pose a potential pollution threat to the same extent as this one does. And this one is, you're talking four and a half million gallons of oil. That one, it's amazing that in a lot of the Liberty ships and the other cargo ships back in those days, that after being on the bottom so long, it still contains that oil. That's freaking yeah. amazing. And 87 wrecks. So you've got 87 time bombs, according to what they're saying, that can really screw up our coastal waters. Well, and, and if it's really serious, how come they're not doing something about it? Well, it's 80 miles off South Carolina. Now, the, the Liberty ships, how, how is that like, that's not like 10W40 that you've got in your car. I'm picturing that this is a little bit thicker variety of oil. Well, I don't think the Liberty ships, I use that term very loosely, were the oh, ones okay. carrying the oil and what have you. Right. I just but, posted yeah, I, something on the on the podcast item. This is from the risk assessment for potentially polluting wrecks in U.S. waters from NOAA. It's quite an interesting read, and some of the pictures are awesome because some of these guys, yeah. some of these ships are over sixteen hundred feet down. So how the heck are you going to one get the oil out or do any kind of work on them, and who's going to pay for it? That's a lot of money. Right. Well, you just print more money. Just turn the presses on, and there you go. Well, my point is, if that was an oil company, you're going to sell them to help, you know, the you know, like the Valdez, the yeah. ones we had in the Gulf. They're going to help fund some of this recovery. Well, yeah. after World War II, who are you going to who are you going to sue? Who are you going to get the money from? Somebody's got to pay for it, and it's usually who's going to da- get damage from the polluted water. But well, it very, seems very like good if you, It seemed like if you had how many of these ticking time bombs? You said I think 80? it was 87 ahead. So 87. So say there's a 1% chance they're going off. We should be seeing one of these ticking time bombs start leaking every other year. And, and we're not now, even, I, remember, remember we covered what, last time or time before last? The ones with the munitions that are right offshore yeah. there in England? That if it goes, it's like yeah. a nuclear weapon that's going to knock out blah, blah, blah. If it's such a big deal, why are you not taking, com- you know, some kind of remedial action? Yeah. Yeah. I would just, uh, the way we have a finding information is so split up and haphazard. It's hard to, to get any intelligent view into what this real risk is. Everybody's got an angle, a pitch at it. And then why is it being covered? How How does it make it into the the media that we consume and it you know, doesn't somebody did a press release. Yeah. 
Yeah, there yeah. there wasn't some author who was like, you know, I really got to make this breaking story on this. It's because it somebody if it, bleeds, if it bleeds, it leads. Nobody's bleeding yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so somebody wrote a press release to give to them, and somebody went, "Eh, I've got my my job is to write twenty articles a day. I, you know, here's one of them, and they put it in. So that's what we get to consume. And because of this podcast and work." curating content for you trying to find it to have something to discuss that's how come we're coming across it but i hate being a feeling a skeptic all the time but it's 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 like you come a little jaded after years of of reading all this stuff where it's always uh somebody's gonna die or or something uh when it comes to these concerns not saying we shouldn't do anything about it and if you had something that if you can clean it up why not but you know at how many millions of dollars for something that's so far down that then they don't even know if it's there. Right, and they haven't even found it yet. Yeah. Well, you got a torpedo on the side. Why are you assuming that all the oil you know, didn't leak at that time? And two torpedoes, actually, for that one. Yeah. I, this is They said in 2013, uh, this is written by the guy who's doing this article, I was working on the exploration vessel Nautilus, and we tested the ability of the hull-mounted multi-beam sonar to detect oil tanker-sized shipwrecks by mapping over the wrecks of the Gulf Oil and the Gulf Pen in the Gulf of Mexico. These 500-foot ships rested about 500 meters, 1,640 feet, of depth and were visible as small bumps on the seabed. So I knew that the size of the Bloody Maria at a similar depth range there would be visible, but smaller shipwrecks with greater depth would pass out of the range of the sonar. So if you know there's 87, you still don't know where most of them are, you know, tragedy waiting to happen, what do you do? Yeah. Interesting article, though. And if you're, yep. that's a 200-page article there that I posted for you if you're interested. Okay. Where did, where did you post it? On the site, on the podcast there. Okay. You can look and see if it's there because that's where I put it. <laughs> Tried to put it. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not seeing it yet. Cause, oh, okay, because it's there it blue, is. right? There, okay, okay, it just came up? Yep. Now I got it. Okay. That's quite interesting. Okay. Potentially polluting wrecks. Yeah, that's, I'll, I'll read that later on. Um. Let's see what's the next one. We have, uh, let's do this one with the artificial reefs teeming with life just month after its creation. This one's out of Florida. Uh, Joe Kistel, executive director of TISIRI, which just rolls off the tongue, is hoping to save the ocean floor by creating artificial reefs. Under the sea, Starship Reef is now teeming with life eight months after this huge project was finished. We learned in the past by doing these projects, these aren't new artificial reefs, have been going on for a long time now. We learned that placing appropriate structures underwater produces an area that allows certain animals to grow that couldn't grow on the Cecil sanding bottoms. This means you can see sea urchins, tropical fish, along with grouper and snapper. Basically, we have fishermen and scuba divers. They want to go. They want to catch fish. They want to see what see the fish. And by creating these reef habitats out there, we are doing that, Kistel said. So we're basically creating a destination to attract boats that can be a spot for local people to go and utilize 
and pretty neat. We can create both a site that benefits the marine environment and creates an offshore destination pretty much using recycled materials. Some of these materials come from Lamb's Yacht Center, which was damaged in past hurricanes. They decided they wanted to do a major overhaul, made the decision about the time we were planning this project, so they decided we would tear down one of their massive concrete docks and provide all the material we needed for the reef project. So what first barge loaded was entirely material from Lamb's Yacht Center, plus a few rocks that came in from California. Why do you need rocks from California? Not they a make, clue. They don't make rocks in Florida. <laughs> yeah, ship it. Uh, other materials came from gate precast, which makes concrete structures from places such as stadium. Uh, it's about eight months of time underwater. The amount of life that at the sites is amazing. There's just so much diversity, so much life. It's really nice to see. It's probably one of the most gratifying parts for me as a person to help coordinate these projects when you see what you create over time and you think that's much life already in just eight months. It's just really makes it fun to watch. I like these, these uh, artificial reef projects like this. Uh, Seems like if you're going to do one, make it out of concrete. Yeah. Yeah. So the two massive piles of concrete created the starship is located 12 miles east of Mickler's Landing area that's open to the public, so grab your scuba gear, fishing pole, check it out for yourself. The $200,000 project was funded by Shell Oil. In fact, the reef is named after the new technology super tanker, the super fuel-efficient truck that runs partially off solar. It brought rocks and minerals from San Diego to Jacksonville, Jacksonville and only had to fill up once. Oh, super-efficient truck. That's actually a pretty good distance. Yeah. California to Jacksonville? You know, unless you got a 900-gallon tank. So that must be where the rock came from. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see something similar in Michigan where we would do something out there. Because I think uh, fishermen would absolutely love it if you put some sort of concrete structure. I mean, we see that at the uh, the breakwaters and piers, such an attractant. So, Right, the breakwater there off uh, of uh, Michigan City is a good example of that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So uh, not surprised at all. No, certain fish are really going to love it. And it's not that the water may not be able to support more fish. It's just that fish need some sort of protection for certain species to not not get eaten up small, that they like to have some places to hide out. And then once you get the food there, the rest will follow. Well, pretty cool. And let's see, what's article? Let's do the like one it. from the Sudan the Sudan tomb. Is that the one? Yeah, underwater archaeology now. <laughs> yeah, the Sudan tomb diver reveals Pharaoh's secrets. Uh, Pierce Paul Creesman and his team were the first people to go into a tomb for 100 years. In that time, it's become harder to access because of the rising water level. Mr. Kreisman told BBC News that it was the first time underwater archaeology had been carried out in Sudan, the location of the ancient royal burial site of Nuri. Uh, he found pottery figurines of and gold leaf. The gold offerings are still there. These small glass-type statues have been lo- uh, leafed in gold, and while the water destroyed the glass underneath, the little gold flakes were still there. He believes these offerings were for... The Tessin, a minor pharaoh, ruled the Kush kingdom from 335 B.C. 
to 315 BC. This gold leaf would have been taken by thieves if it weren't for the rising water level, making the tomb inaccessible at most. Underwater archaeology, Kristen Romney writes in National Geographic. Did I get the time right? I wonder why the glass, water destroyed the glass. I wonder why that's true. I don't water, know. We're, you know, we're looking for wine bottles and stuff like this. Of course, this is BC. That's all. A couple, couple of centuries ago. It'd be interesting. Maybe uh, it's a type of glass. It was. Maybe it's a glass that was, which to me wouldn't be glass. Wouldn't be water soluble. Like yeah. Yeah. So maybe it was like a crystalline material that dissolves, or. Um, uh, Mr. Christman told the BBC that the team dug up as far as we could down 65-step stairway, which led to the tomb entry, but we got 40 steps down until we hit the water table, and we knew we wouldn't be able to pull uh, to go any further without putting our heads under. Normal scuba tanks would be too cumbersome, so he said they used a hose that pumped oxygen from the surface to the dive in January. He described what he found as remarkable. There are three chambers. Uh, with these beautifully arched ceilings about the size of a small bus. You go into one chamber and the next, it's pitch black. You know you're in a tomb if your flashlights aren't on and starts revealing the secrets that are held within the tomb as part of an ancient site of Nuri, which spread more than 170 acres in northern Sudan. These pyramids mark the burials of Kushite royals, who sometimes are referred to as the Black Pharaohs. The Kush kingdom lasted for many years, Years and in, in 8th century BC, it conquered Egypt, which it ruled for almost a century. One difference between the pyramids in Sudan and much more famous pyramids in Egypt is that the kings were buried below them instead of inside. Did you realize Sudan has more pyramids than? Yeah, I've seen uh, photos of them. They're they're a lot smaller pyramids. Right. The article also shows some of the differences in sizes, but they don't get the PR. No. That Egypt does, that's for sure. And a lot of that was uh, because the the Egyptian pyramids are so huge. Uh, you got the Sphinx. There's a lot of history there that uh, is popularized. And then King Tut really just kind of cemented it for Egypt as to be a tourist attraction. Right. I always get a chuckle, though, out. Normal scuba tanks would have been too cumbersome, so instead they used a hose that pumped oxygen. From the surface down to the divers. <laughs> I know. So they, they kind of streamline it. And is it just they don't fact check or people just kind of go, oh, yeah, that's close enough. But it makes you wonder, though, is what can they find now? I mean, you're obviously using a hose. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hooker rig that they've got, you know, surface supplied. Uh, it doesn't look like it's a full face mask, which would be a little unnerving. Because looking at that water there, if that's what they're diving in, there is zero vis. Well, it's got to be going deeper than that. I mean, everybody, right. and the reason the visibility sucks there is because you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. You've got eight people's feet in front of your head. Yeah. The, the, you don't, if you were going to go for anything clear, you, you would let that yeah. settle down for two or three days, and you'd have one guy go in, a cave diver, with a really good camera. Right. Do you see the the steps going down? Uh, Go past the figurine, past the gold chips, and then you see the stairway going down. Ain't no people there. Oh, you don't see that. No. um, 
it, part of it's probably the it timed out on my download. Oh, okay. So, so I'm only yep. seeing the the first one where they're all standing around him. Yeah. Yeah, he does does look like he has a GoPro with the light on it, but uh, yeah. Well, cool. I mean, that's, well, the I mean, figurine. The, you saw the pictures of the pottery and the figures. No, no, none of that. Oh, that's that's. Yeah, that the uh, figurine that he's holding, the uh, pottery, is in the palm of his hand, so it's about the size of your hand, half the size of your hand, and very detailed, very nice looking. And then the uh, pictures of the gold flakes, uh, there's a lot of gold flakes there. And there's a trowel, an arrow, and a plastic case with a top. I don't know if that's where they're putting their samples in that they found. Oh, okay. Yep. I've got it. I refreshed the page and it's coming up now. Yeah. But a little tiny. tiny. Why, yep. Why would you leave the gold down there, though? I mean, you'd bring that up for analysis, especially if it was covering something. There's got to be shards of the pottery or the glass. That's pretty nice, though. And the visibility ain't bad there. Well, in the ones where they're showing the gold flake, yeah, that's that's not underwater. I don't know about that. Do you think the water is that clear that they're showing in that photo? Well, if nobody's been down there and everybody's mucking up the bottom, why wouldn't it? Yeah, to me, that looks like that's in a dry area. I mean, it's a little, it looks a little muddy, but um, I guess it's possible. It's hard to tell how clear it is. Yep. Uh, I don't know why you would leave that down there. Do you have to? or? Well, archaeologists don't have to. They can bring it up, and I'm going to anal- you know, perform analysis on it. And put it in a cardboard box in the basement. Yeah, or something like that in my pocket. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm seeing all those. Yeah. Those those pyramids. Those, I've I haven't personally seen them, but I've seen you know videos and on shows of them. But it's interesting. I like all this stuff. You know, sometimes it might be a blessing for them that they've gone unnoticed because it means you get now you can get a chance to take a look. And then here we got the Revolutionary War shipwreck. Complete with cannons found in the York River. And this one was posted today, July 4th. Uh, researchers scouting the York River for Revolutionary War shipwrecks believe they found another one complete with cannons. Uh, more Like more than most of the 10 wrecks previously discovered, this one is entombed in the muck. A ghostly witness to America's fight for freedom shrouded with a mound of silt and oyster shells. The wrecks are a reminder that Yorktown played a pivotal role in the country's first chapter. A small town in York River has been the scene of the bloody bookend, the last major battle of the war. The wrecks were the remnant of Lord Chris Cornwall's fleet sank in 1781 during the siege of Yorktown. 25,000-man slugfest finally broke broke the back of the British rule in the colonies. As many as 40 British ships were lost there, forgotten for hundreds of years. Explorations of the 20th century located the bulk of the known sites leading to the area become the first underwater listing on the National Historic, the National Registry of Historic Places. But with no comprehensive surveys done in decades, it's been a long time since any new discoveries have been made, especially ones including cannons. It's just incredible, said Ryan Johnston, one of the partners at JRS Exploration. The Yorktown-based outfit created, uh, created to try to map and preserve what's left of the ships. Only a few of the known ships have yielded any kind of cannon. When these were found June 19th, Johnson said the team could only think, you're kidding me. 
The wreck tentatively identified as the remains of a troop transport named the Shipwright was first detected when sensors scanned the bottom, indicated a likely target in about 23 feet of water near the Glossier uh, side of the river. Divers ascended two weeks ago, feeling their way along the near zero visibility, probing into the riverbed and discovering a partially buried iron cannon measuring more than seven feet long. We kind of stumbled into it, so it's encrusted. You can't even put your hand on the muzzle. Uh, they found another, possibly a third, buried even deeper. They also detected what they think is the hull of the ship, resting more a foot, uh, a foot or more down the mud. An excavation which must wait for the proper permits and conservation plans is the only way to be certain of the ship's identity, but every wreck in the river tells its own piece of the Yorktown story. Several clues point to this being one bef- being the shipwright. Our records provide a decent accounting of Cornwall's vessels, not to mention the battle that consumed them. Dozens were intentionally scuttled by the British commander to keep them out of the enemy hands or blockade the harbor. Three are known to have gone up in flames. The most famous of those, Cornwall's largest warship, HMS Charon, French battery's first uh, firing heated shot hit the Charon, setting it ablaze. The blow wasn't as bad as it sounds, since most of the Charon's 44 guns had already been moved ashore to support the ground battle, but when the fire burned through the ship's anchor rope, it drifted into two large transport vessels, compounding the loss. All three burned to the waterline. The Charon was one of the first wrecks ever located in New York, was excavated in the 1930s. The site of the other burned ship has also been long known. This wreck is close to those, to the two of the third, the shipwright. Transport vessels were known to carry a few cannons for self-defense. The clincher divers brought up a chunk of charred-looking wood. It literally smells like fire, believe it or not, Johnston said. The Yorktown shipwreck belongs to the state. The quest to save them is largely volunteer. New finds prove priceless fuel. As inspiration for the crew, geez, we've been happy to find one cannon, but this is huge. Yeah, I think anytime you can find cannon, that's a good day. I I really enjoy looking at some of these because they're so priceless and they give you so much valuable information. And the archaeologists love them to death, but you got no money for it. Yeah, is this kind of like you know, like when when you watch a football game and they interview the the freshman linemen at the end of the game and, you know, they all do the thing where we're going to Disney world and they talk about, you know, thanking their high school coaches and everything. Is it the same thing for underwater archaeologists that they have this thing where you must say it's a pristine wreck and we're going to learn valuable information. It's like they're reading from a card. I don't think I've ever seen one write something that doesn't say that. Invaluable. I love that. It's always invaluable part of history and almost everything they ever find a pristine wreck. Yeah, it's a pristine wreck. Well, I, I guess it's kind of, you know, you've got your funding, and you said, well, this is a crappy old wreck. It didn't teach us anything. In fact, I'm bringing the pieces up, and we're going to use it for a bonfire. Uh, probably does that doesn't go and get them much more grants. I, I find it interesting. Hazard a guess that you'd correct, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of self-correcting or saying what they need to to keep the ball moving. Because it's got to be a challenge if you're an archaeologist to figure out how you're going to fund your next project. So keep everybody yeah, I, I still I want to know, though, seriously, of all the archaeological on the surface, in the water, how has that made one iota difference in how you make your living on a day-to-day <laughs> <Mine>. basis? <laughs> well, 
Well, if and they, how much do you they, really care that they? And because uh, I'm not just talking shipwrecks, I'm talking <laughs> preservation of houses, preservation of cars, preservation whatever. You know, if well, it doesn't benefit somebody monetarily. Well, here's how it helps me personally: is that they go and they write a book, and they need to have the book printed. So then they come to me, and we print the book. So then I'm very interested. So it's always the aspect. What's done it for me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I still like the way they do treasure hunting and stuff in England. You find yeah. it. They evaluate it. I if do. they want it, they pay you the value they value. Yeah. You're, you you're, will get more the, people to find and tell you stuff, and that's what happens. Once you're, you know you're going to get a, free, a fair shake, you know. Mm-hmm. People go out there and go out of their way to help you out because it helps them. Yeah. What's up for me? Yeah, you're seeing the citizen science activities, and, and I'm a big fan of those because that's really the the point of this is to help expend knowledge, and maybe not because us as a society doesn't know about this wreck, uh, but the people that you engage that they then go and look for something that we already knew because this wreck was found because. There's there's drawings, there's ships that you can look at, which will demonstrate a lot of what these have. So there's probably nothing specific, especially in this wreck, other than you know a little bit more. But it's is it necessary? Probably not. But it's entertaining. And, I, well, and you gotta get like, value. So if you, yeah. Well, they always say you know the ship construction. What's unique about it? Well a unique feature about it, does that make it pristine or make it something that has to be protected? And I look at all the, the Spanish ships. You go to Seville, you go to the archives, they can tell you how many pots to piss in they had on that boat. And you're going to tell me they don't have details on the type of ships that it was on, how they were built? I find that hard to believe, unless, again, it's where's the money? Send the cargo, not the ship. Yeah, well, I was watching um, a show earlier. the The Iceman what was that uh, that mummy. Uh, yeah, Udi they found or, up in the Alps. Yeah, you know, five thousand years ago. That's very entertaining. And you know, they they say how it's it's priceless and stuff. But is it really? I mean, we now know things that we didn't know. But can we? You know, are we solving some? human need that is super important that we have to have by that knowledge. Like I said, what has impacted your life on a daily basis or not even daily ever? Yeah. I like to watch it, but I, I think it's all within, you know, context and it's, it, to me, it's entertainment. Yeah. It, that's, that's where it comes down to, you know, it's like going, going to a muse- museum or a, 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 a art, Museum, yeah, I like to do it because I like to look at the stuff. But is it necessary? I mean, I can look at the art museum, or I could starve and die. You know, if if that was my two choices, uh, I think I would prefer my next meal. <laughs> but very cool. And speaking of, like the painting they had there at the bottom of that one. Uh, so that does it for Scuba News. And as we've alienated half our archaeological listeners, they half. 
half or all the archaeological listeners, <laughs> but half the half the nine regular listeners we we got. So, but what, what we're really here to talk about some scuba diving. So, uh, I understand there was some people other than me who got in the water this week. <clears throat> Uh, there was, uh, you got to Pawpaw Lake, didn't you? I think Mac, we may have lost here, or is my connection so bad? Oh, no. Are you hearing me now? Now I'm hearing you. Okay. Well, you got Kevin and Amy. They're up in Alpena for four days, and they've been having a great time. Uh, Ted and Denise, I know they hit Cora. That was today, matter of fact, this morning. Uh, I didn't get noticed till a little late. I can't remember who it is, but they've already hit Ross Township. Uh, I hit Paul Paul Lake again, Medley Tech. So, I mean, that's right there. A couple of us are hitting the water. And if you look on the site, they're not part of the Mud Clubbers, but they're part of the Mud Club uh, Facebook part. Uh, a lot of people have been getting wet. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's July. If you're not getting wet in July, you're not going to get wet at all. And, and we've had a large rash of people on the Mud Club site and even on the uh, uh, Scoop Obsessed site looking for people to dive with or wanting to know yes. how to dive. That's the big one is uh, connections. Yeah. And that's a yeah. value that the Facebook and or the club site plays. And uh, they started up a new one, a new club. You saw that uh, for the ladies? I, I did see that somebody was starting a ladies uh, club. Yep. Uh, I mean, that's great. Yeah. I mean, and, and they're not excluding guys diving with them, but the nice part is they got, let's get a ladies club out there. That's great. I'm glad to see that. Well, I think anything that gets people comfortable, um, and I think sometimes it can be perceived that it's a guy sport. And and part of it is a, is a personality, because what is one of the things that you will see people talk about divers is that they tend to be a little bit of expeditionists or perceived to be uh, because you have to change in and out of a wetsuit in some unusual location. So I think until you figure out the, the, the reality of really what it takes to go diving at different spots, uh, maybe a non-co-ed type group may help some of the Shire people yeah. uh, feel comfortable because it's really not that bad. I mean, once you, you figure it out. I mean, you can you can change quite well in your car or under a uh, a good sized towel, uh, or come in your gear. We see people do that. And uh, well, we've got a lot of the the pop up shelters one on one, so you can get in. Yep. Yeah. If you're diving anywhere that's got a porta potty, you got it made. Yep. Just uh, just take something to put over the seat that you don't suddenly drop your wallet or your glasses or your cell phone because i ain't gonna go get it no I, there's no hooker rig that's gonna get me <laughs> yeah. to, to drop down into a yeah the new club starting up is called the west michigan ladies dive club yep so you can Glad search for that on there. facebook and if, yeah. if that's something that interests you you could go and and i would certainly welcome anybody who's in that club uh to come diving with anybody that we know i mean it's yeah. not you know, I, I don't, I do not have a problem with people setting up a club like that. Oh, heck no. I would like to think that us as the Michigan underwater divers or any other dive club would like to be inclusive enough where they would feel comfortable diving. But if that's the type of organization that gets you started, uh, then 
that's good. That's a good thing. We, we uh, want more divers. You've you've done Ross Lake before, right? Uh, I think so. I'm I'm right now. I'm not because that's. I am looking at a picture. Go Lake Ross Township Park. Uh, the map is not 100 percent correct, but it shows all the items at Ross Park and where no, they're at and the depth. It shows the railroad tracks, the baseball hoops, train wheels, the signal lights, car to the left. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at a boat, motorcycle, shanty, uh, another boat, trees, and the uh, trampoline set yeah. or decking no. made a no. chain. Is Ross the one that we typically would go to all the yes, time? Yes, Ross Township. That's where because we used it, to have our club park. Yeah, yeah. That I've been to that one a bunch of times, and I saw that that diagram you're talking about. Right, it's on the Facebook. Yeah, they did an excellent job in putting that together. That's one of the better, very nice of them. better views. So it's it's worth taking a look a peek at. Uh, very well done. Uh, yeah, because it gives you a good perspective of when you're down there where I need to go to look at something. And they used to have the lines connecting, but a lot of times the lines get buried in the silt or broken. Yeah, because that's a for many people in that Kalamazoo area, that may be the first spot they go and dive at. That could be their open water dive at that location. Yeah, that's that's good. I like that. Uh, but that makes me think when I saw that uh, people have been looking and trying to connect with people to dive, and I know I've seen websites or apps before uh, showing people, you know, to connect. At any moment in time, it's it's nothing that I would currently have on my phone or keep looking at. So that seems to be an ongoing challenge. So Maybe I didn't forget. Solved. Yeah, yeah, it? Because it, so I didn't get uh, forget about it. I put it on the site here, and it should pop up. So if somebody gets to our site online, they can find the same coordinates Yep. and the picture. And uh, with this one, I think I'll put it on the club site so we also have it there also. So yeah, and down the road, get Facebook, go to the club site, you can find the same map. And we originally set up the club site. We actually had a page for each dive site, so maybe we should well, we still do. page. Well, we still do, but when they change some kind of formatting, a lot of our stuff is somewhere out there, but it's not where it used to be. <laughs> and my daughter and I have been working on that a little bit. Yeah, but this would be a great one to, to link to. and. And this one looks like, I mean, the link that we're linking to is from SAS Dive, which is the uh, yep. subaquatic sports dive shop in uh, Kalamazoo, their area. Yeah, they do a lot of training there, so it's a nice mm-hmm. place. Yeah, very yeah, very nice. I love that, that diagram. And this shows that this is something that somebody could do. If you're, this is not, this is not like Mona Lisa, you know, Da Vinci quality artwork. These are very simple drawings that either they made or they found on the internet and they just put them together in organizing. It's a good example of how you can communicate an idea to somebody so they know what they're going to see. And I instantly recognize them, you know, just by looking at this, this diagram. Well, hopefully you're enjoying the show. And if you are, we would certainly appreciate your support. You can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link. And as much as I like to swear at them before the meeting or before the podcast, uh, they are a good way of supporting creators. So as we create this content, 
uh, curate this, discuss it. Hopefully you find it interesting for whatever reason. If it's your, uh, you catch up and binge on them as you're heading to your dive site or if it's something that you do in the off season just to keep yourself interested in scuba diving, uh, we'd certainly like to keep it going. And your support helps us know that that is something of value to you. So if you're getting value from it, uh, please support us and, you know, $3 or more. And if you can't do that, we understand. We also appreciate those five-star reviews. Those help get people to listen to the podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. Uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. And I know there's one I'm, I'm missing that I'm thinking about. Uh, be doing a little bit more on YouTube. I've been fighting with YouTube a little bit, so I'm changing a few things around. Mac, you have anything you want to plug? Mac, I think I lost you again. Did I lose you again? Yep. Yeah, what I have, I have uh, another update or a safety message. Oh, yeah, certainly, yeah, certainly let's do the safety. Uh, it's called Four Reasons Scuba Divers Die. And this, of course, I get a lot of my material from Dan. And pop quiz. An overweight diver in poor physical condition returns to diving after a hiatus of several years. He pulls his old gear off the shelf, hops on a dive boat, attempts to dive on a current swept reef at 80 feet. Anxious and struggling for much of the dive, he burns through his air supply at an alarming rate. Upon discovering his tank is nearly empty, the startled diver makes a rapid, barely controlled ascent to the surface and suffers a fatal air embolism. What caused the accident? Well. If you get an A, if you answered all of the above, as this scenario, a composite of accidents found in one of the annual reports of accidents and fatalities from the Divers Alert Network, or DAN, illustrates fatal dive accidents often have multiple and complex root causes. DAN Research Director put it this way, while each accident may be different and some of them occur in an instance, most accidents can be presented as a chain of multiple events that lead to a deadly outcome. Removing any link from that chain may change the outcome. Based on a general look at dive fatalities around the world, there are four general contributing factors that lead to fatal dive accidents. Number one is poor diver health. Now, almost any pre-existing medical condition or health factor can affect the diver's safety. Common examples include obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, breathing difficulties, temporary or chronic, a general lack of fitness, pre-existing injuries, and dehydration. The biggest contributing factor involves divers with a body mass index in the overweight or obese or more morbidly obese categories. Today, diving is open to people with a host of medical conditions that a, de- a decade ago would have prohibited them from participating in the sport. However, if you have any of those conditions or have any one of those conditions, it is important that you have your health regularly monitored and you manage your medical situation properly. Treated and controlled high blood pressure, for example, may not create nearly the risk factors as uncontrolled high blood pressure. Temporary health conditions like cold, severe allergies can be problematic, whether permanent or temporary. Any health condition that impedes your ability to be alert, to recognize and respond to environmental conditions, and otherwise safety plan and complete your dive should be contradictive to diving. 
I think that's called common sense. Even after you recover from your illness or chronic condition and back in check, you got to check your body needs from time to time. To time. Your body needs to recover from the effects of medical complications. For example, your cough may be gone, but it may take time for your, ke- your chest congestion to clear. Rushing into the water before you're physically able to breathe deeply can leave you starved to fear, which may lead to panic. In this situation, trying to breathe deeply when all the body is just not able to causes you to feel as you can't get air at all. Leads to stress, leads to poor decision-making, or worse, full panic scale. Procedural errors. Procedural errors common to dive accidents include, and we've mentioned this time and time again, buoyancy control problems. Other one, rapid ascents, missed decompression stops, general skill limitations, air equalization problems, and most critically, failing to monitor air supply. Once you get in that low on air or out of air, all bets are off. In some cases, the diver lacked the appropriate training to specialized diving activities like overhead environments, caves, wrecks, or deep diving. In other cases, the diver stayed within the scope of his training, but his emergency response skills weren't up to the challenge. Three critical words will help any diver be better prepared for dealing with a demanding diving situation. It's called practice, practice, practice. The lack of diving experience or skills or equipment that is unfamiliar adds to the stress of a demanding diving situation and can lead to task-loading situation resulting in an inappropriate reaction to a situation. That's like every time you're doing a dive and you're adding some new item, like I'm going to dive a camera, or I'm going to dive mixed gas with my camera, or I'm going to go deep on my mixed gas camera, you're compounding your issues. Okay, environmental issues. Open water environments can change rapidly, and any diver who is unprepared, out of practice, physically incapable of adapting to these changes, can become a victim. Before you dive, evaluate the air and water temperature. How about the current? Wave action. How about the depth and visibility? Not all diving is the same. For example, if you're a warm water diver, making your first cold water dive, the effects of the water temperature can be a shock to you in your first entry. Shallow water divers are often surprised by how rapidly they use their air supply and the impact of narcosis on the dive in a 100 foot. foot. Fighting an unexpected current while exploring a wreck is no fun, especially if you lack good buoyancy control. The ability to swim in a streamlined, efficient manner or lack of physical endurance to fight that current. Equipment problems. While equipment failures account for fewer fatalities than the reasons above, they are one of the most predictable and easily preventable. Because of fatal dive accidents, the equipment issues are often obvious before the dive, and the observant diver can effectively make a preemptive self-rescue before he enters the water by not entering the water. The best policy is to check your equipment thoroughly before you board the dive boat your gear carefully, and follow all recommended service intervals. If it's not working right on the surface, it's not going to get any better in the water. And I think most of those are true. And most of us have experienced every one of those to some extent. 
Yeah, you you got to realize that once things go wrong, it's the compounding of those issues that make it worse. Oh yeah. So that's my uh, report for today. Well, thank you very much. Good as always. Did you just put something in with the? Uh, I just saw pollution. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I was going through there and I was looking at the wrecks, and I'm, I'm just kind of screenshot all those wrecks. I'm trying to think of those dots of wrecks in our area. You know, what are they? Now, I know they didn't make the filtered down version where it was showing 80 that they thought were fairly serious, but these are all were listed as wrecks with uh, pollution risk. In Lake Michigan or yeah. in the Great Lakes. Yeah. So, and I think what they're doing is they're saying any vessel that contained petrochemicals meaning it was probably a steel vessel with some sort of engine. Yeah. Could show up in the list. So that could be tugboats or uh anything with a note. Yeah, any any you know, somewhat modern. I'm I'm hoping that they're not putting, you know, pleasure craft of you know, less than twenty feet on there. But if you had a hundred foot luxury boat with maybe a five hundred to thousand gallon tank, you know that might be something that could make a unfiltered version of that list. Oh yeah. So that's certainly some good reading and very, and very well done. I have to say, I like the approach that they went to uh, talking about how they, they assigned the, the risk and the priorities. So that's a, I like the methodical approach they took. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've done it for this week. I do have some jokes queued up maybe we can see ones i tried looking for some um kind of somewhat timely for this part of the year so we'll do this one this first one will be a warm-up and does have to do with uh fireworks or the fourth of july for us little johnny's father gives him fifty dollars to buy some fireworks for the new year when he returns they try a couple but none of them work johnny where'd you get these fireworks none of them work Strange, when I was on my way back, I tried them all, and they worked just fine. It's hard to bring home a firecracker after you've tried it. Yeah. And those rockets are hard to find. Okay, let's see. There's another one. And this one, uh, you kind of have to know a little bit of popular culture, and imagine it may be a little bit U.S.-centric, but here we go. Rabbi Goldman, world traveler, comes to lonely, a lovely island in the South Pacific. It's a beautiful place, lush and vibrant, and there's home to a tribe called the Trids. Goldman makes a good impression on them, and they're very welcoming people already, so it's not long before they're having a nice cookout to welcome him. While they're eating, Rabbi, Rabbi Goldman looks at land and sees a tall, truncated mountain in the center of the island. There's a plateau at the top, but he can't see what's up there, so ever curious, he poaches one of the Trid elders and asks, that plateau up there, what gives? What's up there? The islander shakes his head. We're not really sure. See, we can't go up there. But why not, asks the rabbi. Well, says the islander, there's a giant who lives up there. He has for generations. And for all those generations, when one of us tries to climb up there, she flicks her fingers and makes a clicking sound with her tongue in the roof of her mouth. The giant comes over and kicks us off the mountain. The rabbi uh, scratches his chin and says, you don't say. Hey, if you're thinking about what I think you're thinking, Goldman, don't. He'll just kick you off too. 
Well, we'll see about that, he says, and he goes back to his feast. The next morning rolls around, and at the, right at the crack of dawn, Goldman heads out of the village and towards the mountain. He spends a day climbing up the slope, scrambling over boulders, squeezing between jagged outcroppings, but he perseveres. By mid-afternoon, he reaches the top, and then he discovers a garden paradise with fertile orchards, flowers like fireworks, the sweet, heady scent of some come-hither vine, and the giant. Twelve feet tall, if he's an inch. The giant lumbers over to the edge of the plateau, a gruff, bestial version of savage and fury. He stands there and does nothing. Goldman stands his ground. Still nothing happens. Finally, he shrugs and says, Hello, hello, giant. Look, I have to admit, I'm surprised you haven't kicked me off the mountain yet. The giant quarrels and rolls back. Ha, silly rabbi. Kicks her for trids. I think that kind of does go in the bad category. <laughs> so I, I would explain it, but then that would even make it worse. So we, we won't for now. Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. I spoke Craig wrong. I said Krog. <laughs> yeah. Scuba Obsessed episode 411 was recorded live July 3rd, 2019. No, it's not July 3rd. Darn it. <laughs> Here we go. Did I lose Mac? Hello? Okay, I'm back. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're muted. You want to start over or you want me just to bit it up? Sorry. Uh, jo- joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Uh, 